good afternoon everybody. This paper, uh, Meera and I have written combinedly and uh, our plan was that I speak for some 20 minutes or less and Meera will ask, answer the questions <coughs> because that is the uh, tougher portion so she will handle the questions. Uh, a, a good many points that uh, Manojna Shastri made and I am going to make are more or less the same because we have chosen the same topic. In this paper, uh, when it comes out in print, you can see things in greater detail and naturally have to be uh, somewhat brief. And uh, This paper aims at five things. Number one, summarize the points made by Pollock in as dispassionate and accurate a manner as possible. Two, analyze the same from various angles. Three, discuss the propriety of the data selected and analyzed by him. Four, discuss the general methodological idiosyncrasies betrayed in his writings. And five, provide pointers to the Uttarapakshans as to where further work is necessary to possibly uncover more data and do greater justice to the issue. Now my talk is divided into <coughs> four parts. So the Purupakshan is the paper of uh, Pollock, Depth of Sanskrit. So um, that we will be able to analyze. One is the thesis of the thesis. So what is going to say? Part uh, two is the consideration of the um, analysis of the analysis. Number three is the meta-analysis of uh, his analysis. And four is conversion. These are the four divisions into which uh, my lecture will fall. Right at the outside, Pollock brings in political issues. So he takes into account the political scenario of the ascent of BJP to power. And he says the Hindutva propagandists have sought to show that Sanskrit is indigenous to India, as if it is not. Sanskrit is considered the source and sole preserver of world culture, as if it is not. So he wants to make what an average Indian and an educated Indian would normally believe as something totally fantastic and unbelievable and groundless, utterly groundless. That's what he wants to make this out to be. And he, therefore, he says, even with all the awards, grants and promotion via all India radio, school curricula, etc., Sanskrit is as good as being in a coma, kept alive artificially as an exercise in nostalgia. And hence, in some crucial way, Sanskrit is dead. So, artificial life support systems, it is that uh, Sanskrit is being supported. Going by the attitude shown by our government, who have very carefully followed the legacy of the British, where they are more loyal than the king, it looks like that. They, are, they have kept, it, Sanskrit, kept Sanskrit in suspended animation, ensuring that it does not really progress. So, compared to the, the kind of attention uh, that the kings gave to Sanskrit, you can see that our governments have been very poor in supporting Sanskrit. And therefore, there is some truth in 
defined, that Sanskrit is being kept artificially alive instead of being actively supporting what was our tradition for something like 5,000 years. So instead of giving this, in fact, it is Polok who points out that uh, prior to the predominance of English all over the world, if there was one language which is dominant over the entire globe, it was Sanskrit prior to, to English. So he knows that and yet he wants to say that Sanskrit is somehow is crucially dead in, uh, in some crucial way Sanskrit is dead and therefore all the efforts of the, the present government. So he wrote the paper earlier when NDA government was there, NDA1 was there and therefore he wants to say attack the, see, he has direct political angle. Um, Rajamulatra has shown on various occasions that it is not without political overtones uh, on all his writings. So supposedly academic, but his primary concerns are see, uh, political and therefore we cannot take it as merely academic and therefore there are many non-academic issues and involvements in his writings. So, and he has a very peculiar criteria to say uh, that the measure of um, the progress of Sanskrit is to be based only on the quality and the quantity and the production of um, the kavyas. So, this is also another crucial issue. So, where he chooses very arbitrary criteria and does not give any justification for the same. In order to prove that um, Sanskrit is dead, he considers four situations. Kashmir, the 13th century C, Vijayanagar, 16th century C, Mughal courts in mid 17th century, and Bengal in 19th century. So, the first one he uh, entitles Lady Vanishes, and second one is Vijayanagara and Vidyanagara, he calls it the, the, the city of see, knowledge and the city of India. So, in the first one, in the case of Kashmir, so he says the literature was merely reduced to Sotras, as if the Sotras lack utter creativity. So one can see abundant creativity in the, in the kind of Sotra literature in India. So nowhere in the world can you see the kind of creativity even in the Sotras that are ignored. So, but he wants to reduce it. That is precisely because he is making an appeal to the common man today who is totally disjunct from Sanskrit. He doesn't know what is there in Sanskrit and he will easily fall a prey to the comments of uh, this, this kind of prejudicing the reader. So. Uh, that way he says that is everything is reduced to nothing more than uh, Sotras. And then he always wants to glorify, as Manojna very well pointed out, he always wants to glorify the foreigner. So, and see, downplay the Hindu king. So, in fact, even the even his uh, student, Trushke, has um, recently written. So, she is a very faithful student. She is of uh, Sheldon Polon. And she says that it is Muslim king, so, see, uh, who are highly uh, patronizing to Sanskrit and it is Hindu kings that destroyed Sanskrit. So, that tradition is being carried on. So, uh, the, the, he refers to uh, Srivara, says there is no original work. But he also says, his Vashtavali implies a reasonably accomplished curatorial study of Sanskrit, the Sultan's court or a substantial library. So, uh, on the one hand he condemns Srivara, and on the other, he glorifies him. And at the same time, he says that he was due to the patronage of the king, or perhaps he had a good library. So, in other words, no creativity present in the author. So, it can be attributed to all external causes. So, such is the kind of uh, uh, comments that he makes. 
coming next to Vijayanagara Empire. So Vijayanagara and Vidyanagara. So there he says uh, there was this. This was the context of the uh, simultaneous patronage of Kerala, Telugu, Sanskrit, and Tamil. All these languages flourished, and he once again wants to bring in, see, bring uh, bring out a rift between vernacular languages and Sanskrit. And he says Krishnadeva did, did very little to promote courtly literature in Kerala. So you can remember here that Shankar Pulak has done a lot of work on Kannada also. He knows Kannada quite well. He studied with one professor. Maybe Venkatesh Shastri in Mysore. So, and he has studied Kannada. He studied old Kannada also. So, because of that knowledge of Kannada, he now tries to pit Kannada against Sanskrit. As Manohi also pointed out very well, all through our tradition, it was what is called Ubhya Bhasha Vidwan. So, if somebody knew Bengali, he also knew Sanskrit very well. That is, if this, this new system came, to the Nepali system struck roots. It was always the case of Bhai Bhasha Vidwan. He was a, a person as a Telugu Pandit. He also knew Sanskrit very well. And in fact, he was a good Telugu Pandit because he knew Sanskrit very well. That was the tradition in our country. In fact, one of the stalwarts of Kannada by name Hamanayaka, in his last interview prior to his death, he made one statement. See, in the, in the first flush of youth, I committed a blunder for which I have been repenting lifelong. He was the topmost person in Kannada literature. And what he did when he joined the university was remove Sanskrit from the syllabus of Sanskrit, Kannada ME, so that no Kannada ME student has any touch of Sanskrit. As a consequence of which, he says, after 25 years later, after 25 years, he says, today there is not one person left who can read Hada Kannada or Old Kannada, the original, and understand it. So I hold myself responsible for it and I regret my decision. So in those days, I was a fanatic of Canada, and therefore I saw to it that Sanskrit was removed from the syllabus. And it's only now that I realize that it was such a great blunder. So this is the kind of thing that is happening. Today, what has happened is, you go to an ME of any Indian language, whether it be Kannada ME or Telugu ME or Tamil ME or Hindi ME, the first quality that is see, that you can um, evidence in the events in him is that he is first a hater of Sanskrit and then a master of that language. So, no true mastery of that language because, see, India was the country which was most famous for its linguistic knowledge. In fact, um, Professor M.B. Eminem of Berkeley University has see, uh, points out two excellences of India. India is great if, for nothing else, two things study of language, study of mind. These are the most difficult things. See, it is possible to make fast progress in exact sciences, in what are called hard sciences, say in chemistry, for example. So it's definitely possible to make, because things are tangible there. The most intangible things in the world are language and mind. And long in pre-Christian era, India had mastered these two languages, the production of Pawnee's grammar, comparable to which there is no grammar in the entire world for any, for any language, in, so for any language in any language. So in spite of the fact that there are thousands of engineers working today on, say, language processing, so in computational linguistics, there are so many who are working, but they have not been able to produce a language, a grammar book comparable to Pawnee. And what is the bulk of Pawnee's work? 4,000 sutras. How much does it come to? About 1,000 shlokas. And in, in, in print, it comes to 50 pages. Just 50 pages of a grammar book, which can cover the entire grammar of the Sanskrit language, the most complex language it is. So that is the kind of see, uh, achievement that has been made. 
and when it comes to the study of mind, Patanjali Yoga Sutras, less than 200 sutras, all that can be printed in about four pages. In just four pages, he has made such an in-depth study of mind. So, such compactness, so it has been achieved, and such comprehensiveness, the world has not witnessed. In such a country as this, we find that all the linguistic departments are languishing today. And this is most unfortunate that, uh, see, that uh, every Indian uh, local language, vernacular language, has been pitted against Sanskrit and this kind of animosity. So, equating Sanskrit with Brahmins and thereby secret that their enmity is perpetuated. Now, uh, he says, uh, he even says that Krishna Raya wrote Amukta Malidan Telugu and not in Kannada. So, he is choose to, he can choose to write in the language that pleases him. And it's only you know, to create a rift between Kannada speaking people and Sri Krishna Devaraya because Kannada people admire Krishna Devaraya no end and therefore he wants to see to it that this ends and therefore there should be no admiration of the past that is the kind of agenda that he has and therefore uh, uh, he makes comments like this. So he compares two uh, Mahabharata verse, one in Kannada and one in Sanskrit and says the Kannada Mahabharata version, Sanskrit Mahabharata by Jivakara is hardly wanted, hardly studied and tries to once again see pit this against them. <coughs> and all Sanskrit he says was on account of the patronage of kings and when the empire disappeared, that sounded the death knell for Sanskrit as well. So this is the kind of uh, analysis that he tries to make. And even the work Jambodhi Pranaya that was written by Krishnadevaraya, <coughs> he, he tries to attribute it to a semi-autobiographical status he wants to gain. And instead of, see, well, while in, in that uh, Kavya, Krishna licks the hand of uh, Jambodhi and uh, he, he tries to equate it to some historical event in the life of Devaraya, while that might not have been actually intended by Devaraya at all. Coming to the next portion of uh, the Mughal court where he speaks of the, the so-called lost Sanskrit poet Jagannath Pandita. He speaks of him as very close to us in time and yet we have almost as little concrete evidence about him as we have about the first century master Kalidasa. Now, Westerners have been too very critical of the, the lack of historical sense of uh, Hindu uh, poets or writers or kings or whatever. There is not much of chronicling see, in our country. That is primarily because of the approach to life. So, just as the, the Westerners have their own bias of being see, utterly historical and trying to document every trivial thing also they want to document. And this see, history consciousness or history see, fixation, I should say, of the West has been very well analyzed by Rajima Lothra in his very many books. And in our country, so history was relegated to a minor role. And what was more important in life, the important, more important issues in life were paid attention to. And that's why there was less attention to history. Now, even regarding Jagannath Pandita, so he wants to say that what little was novel in Jagannath Pandita was due to his marrying a Muslim woman. So, and he himself says that, see, this is only a story and it's not substantiated on the one hand. And elsewhere he says that if there is anything original in Jagannath Pandita, it was because of this new connection with Muslim kings and Muslim courts and Muslim poets and because he married a Muslim woman. So he himself, he, he makes this, this kind of uh, contradictions. 
So again, if you have to see this in the, the same period, Jane Wong. So he was a person of great personal beauty and charm, and he was persuaded to, to see convert uh, to Islam. And uh, he says he was open to new ideas because of his association with, say, Abu Fazl and the attitudes of Akbar and so on. So. Uh, there were Mughal courtiers like Abdul Rahim who were experimenting with writing in Sanskrit and um, Sanskrit intellectuals, intellectuals like Siddhi Sindhav, they were learning Persian. So it's all this that makes them look something extra. So in the case of Kavindra Chari Saraswati, so he perceived Shah Zahan from leaving uh, Jizya tax on the pilgrims and that's the only point that's worth mentioning about him and about him. And he says that in the works of, say, lives and works of Siddhishendra and Kavindra, um, what, is, what stands out is that they would resist all other learning as if they had utterly closed minds. And we find that similarly in the case of uh, Bengal also. So, what was taught then was, see, popularly taught was Nyaya, Vyakarma, and other Shastras. And he bemoans the fact that students pursuing literature, not many in number. Actually speaking, studying literature is not the more difficult of these. Studying the Shastras like Nyaya, Vyakarana and say, other Shastras, that is the tougher thing. And those who can do attempt such tough things can as well read Kavya's on their own. And he wants to say that Kavya was neglected and therefore see, uh, Sanskrit was neglected and so on. So, uh, he draws some peculiar conclusions and he says even more exclusively associated with narrow forms of religion and priestcraft despite centuries of secular aesthetic. So he wants to attack Sanskrit as uh, merely being see, uh, tools of priestcraft and sotra literature and so on. He ends this, this section saying the mental and social spheres of Sanskrit literary production grew ever more constricted and the personal and disorderly and eventually even the pre-century scientists politically evaporated until only the dry sediment of religious hymnology remained. For him, all Sotra literature is nothing but dry sediment of religious hymnology. At all events, the fact remains that well before the consolidation of colonialism, before even the establishment of Islamic political order, the mastery of tradition had become an end in itself for core Sanskrit literary culture and reproduction rather than revitalization, the overriding concern in the field of power of the time. The production of Sanskrit literature had become a paradoxical form of life where prestige and exclusivity were both vital and terminal. So he makes these uh, scathing kind of comments. Now in our country, the very uh, definition and the purpose of knowledge was quite different from the Western approach. Uh, nothing was pursued for its own sake. Everything was pursued for the sake of the four Purusharthas, namely Dhamma, Thakama, and Moksha. You can look into the opening of any Shastra, so as diverse as, say, Ayurveda or even, say, Nati Shastra, the opening declaration is that this for the sake of the pursuit of the four Purusharthas that this Shastra is written. This is the common goal of every Shastra. And no no field, no art or literature was done for its own sake. It is Anand Kumar Swami who pointed out that art for art's sake was never pursued in India. So even the most secular activities of life had a religious orientation. And if there is one thing that is 
enjoined to be done for its own sake, it is what Patanjali says. He says, Brahmanena Nishkaranaha Vedaha Sasadangu Adhyayu Gyeshya. So, for no reason at all, must a Brahmin study the Vedas along with the Vedangas and he must understand them. So, just studying the Vedas itself, learning them by heart, it's a lifetime task. So, it's not an easy thing. So vast is the literature. So, those who come from single book religions can't understand the gravity of the situation here and the enormity of the task here. And therefore, it was the task of the Brahmana to study the Vedas along with the six Angas. And this requires enormous see, inputs of time and energy. And the very approach to life is most beautifully, why should knowledge be see, pursued? India has set a very uh, excellent uh, see, pattern for that. There is a beautiful verse in Mahabharata which says, Aharatham karma kuriyadanindyam kuriyadaharam pranasandharanatham pranasandharyaha tattva vijnana netoho tattvam gnyayam gena kuriyona janma. So, he says, it says, take up a job and work. And why should you do that? For the sake of food, aharatham. Why should you consume food? Pranasandharanatham, to sustain life. Why should you sustain life? In order to know the tattva, tattva vijnana heto, why should you know tattva? It is for the reason that yena bhuyo na janma, that you may not be reborn, that you may attain the final state of moksha. So, this was the pattern that was set. And for every person, the, the way to moksha was open. So, it's not merely for the brahmana. So, sve karman nivirataha, siddhim vindati manama says the Bhagavad Gita, and therefore, uh, it is open to everyone. And this kind of uh, uh, art for art's sake was never ever see, uh, pursued. Now, what Pallav uh, does is focusing on a very narrow range of a very vast spectrum. See, it is Westerners, as Rajamulatra Ji was pointing out in the morning, it is the Westerners who put the picture together, collecting the various pieces from see, various branches. So, somebody knows only Sanskrit, somebody knows only archaeology, and so on. So, all these pictures were put together by the British and the Westerners and in fact they had they could have had a better picture of India than some of the Indians themselves could do because these could not get easily an integrated picture and having got the picture they could they did everything that they could sabotage. Now Pana always emphasizes good effects of for example Sultan uh, Zainul Abidin and he would like to emphasize on the, the badness of uh, Hindu kings. And when Hanadeya points out that Jagannatha being called the last Sanskrit poet is not warranted, as there are works such as those of Ambikadatta Vyasa, Mahakavya, Nepali scholar, Sukriti Datta, Panda, and writings of Chamarao, in the recent times, in the post independence period also. In fact, if you want to look into modern Sanskrit literature, 19th and 20th century literature, there is an abundance of that. And one can produce counter evidence for Pollock's claims here. And number two, another technique that he does is list and dismiss. So, great geopardy such as the loss of valuable texts by fires that destroy libraries in Kashmir find a very casual mention. So, look at the, the casual way in which he says. Important creative texts may have disappeared as if books have capacity to disappear on their own. So perhaps in one of the files that periodically engulfed the capital of Kashmir. So he doesn't want to say 
Muslims today, the invaders today. So he would not, he, would, he has to whitewash them. So and show that they are all great and pure or whatever. Or in the Mongol invasion of 1320, which according to 16th century Persian chronicle left the country in ruins. Texts may have simply eluded the notice of modern editors. However carefully they may have combed the massive collections of Kashmir, but none of the, all these possibilities seems very blind. So he contradicts himself very well. So he gives some um, three or four possibilities and ultimately dismisses them without assigning any reason. So he says, but none of these possibilities seems very likely. Why? Why do they seem so? He doesn't explain. <clears throat> On the other hand, we have, for example, in Srivara's Rajatarangini, he says how the king Sikandar destroyed libraries. So I have given the reference here. Sikandar Dharanathaha Yavanai Preritapura Pustakanaja Sarvan Dhranan Yagnirivadat. So he says he burnt libraries. So like fire burning grass, libraries were burnt. So there is this see evidence from Rajatarangini. So such is the see, love of knowledge of those uh, great invaders. So uh, the Gudshikan, that very tightly means the destroyer of idols. So similarly, uh, in the case of Vijayanagara, civil uh, riots that the foreign capital, Vijayanagara, was ruthlessly pillaged and destroyed for five months. So you can imagine the amount of uh, the richness of that village. And the the kind of logic that he uses, he says, for example, <coughs> perhaps, probably, and therefore. So, this kind of uh, uh, logic that Arun Shaudi also points out, he makes a statement with, uh, uh, see, with uh, the prefix, perhaps this happened. And in another, after two paragraphs, he says, probably this happened. And in the last paragraph, he says, therefore this happened. So, <laughs> so the, so it's only uh, conjecture upon conjecture okay, that he makes and the way he presents it as though he has been able to arrive at a conclusion based on solid facts. So there is a, there is a uh, nice or rather bad comment about uh, history. <coughs> See whereas in science we start with facts first and then try to build theories over him. History is, he says, <coughs> history is Hardcore interpretation surrounded by a pulp of disputable facts. <laughs> so we should have hardcore facts and interpretation should surround that. So history is the reverse of that. So this is exactly, he is very faithful to being such a historian. So um, in sum, by assuming a disputed conjecture to be fact, you know, for example, even in the case of uh, Jagannath Pandita, he says Romani Vilasa is good because it is autobiographical. So, uh, he, he is relating uh, uh, some uh, yes, some personal event in his life, so and therefore this is good and so on. So uh, making Bhavani Vidasa a personal narrative, and it is about his beloved who was a Muslim and trying to explain the inconsistencies in the points of view of Jagannatha in his poetic and scholarly verse. Falak is discarding simple and plausible explanations in favor of complicated and unlikely speculations. So even the selection of data and see. Only whatever is very convenient for him, he selects such data, and whatever is inconvenient, he discards. So, what happens is for a uh, typical reader who is generally ignorant of history also and doesn't get the total picture. So, he is, he sees that some of the facts cited by him are true, and he is likely to confuse that the whole picture given by him is true, whereas he is making this kind of uh, say, selective representation. As time is running out, uh, I don't think, uh, for the detail, um, there is a 
uh, <coughs> good deal of uh, meta-analysis at the end. So uh, I'll only read out the headings of these points I, I, because I cannot uh, cover them now. Choosing a narrow definition to determine the vitality of a tradition or language. So that's one of the techniques that he makes use of. These are these computer analysis. Selecting data to fit a theory. So I have given some illustrations already. Selecting playing, selective playing up and playing down. If it is a question of a, a Muslim ruler, so he plays up. If it's a question of Hindu ruler, it's play plays down all the achievements. So he already has some theories uh, defined, and uh, uh, and then using frameworks of social science and modern psychology and anthropology in biblical studies to simply pose on traditional Indian thought and then list and dismiss. Now you can come out with some counter arguments for uh, uh, what Pollock says but he, you know, he can anticipate that and he makes a mention of that, passing mention of that and says that these are all worthless arguments and so you should feel, you should feel that you have no new point to make or something and then Divida et Impera. So, um, the way he can create this. Uh, so anyhow, we can uh, we can see that uh, uh, that's Handler rightly points to the essential cultural misunderstanding that Pollock displays when he repeatedly points to the death of Sanskrit. So he says Sanskrit was born dead, and then he says in different centuries Sanskrit died again, Sanskrit died again. If something was born dead, how uh, can it die again and again? So uh, anyhow. It is because, and the point is, since 2001, so for 15 years, nobody has done a critique of this. And uh, must give it the full credit to Rajimalodra to bring it to the attention of Sanskritists and make us see a serious attempt to see the fallacies of his logic. So I thank Rajimalodra for this uh, wonderful moment. And uh, it's open to questions. Mira will be ready to answer questions.